Would you like an opinion on a financial matter you're dealing with? Whether it's about retirement, investments, taxes, or 401ks, Scott Hansen and Pat McLean would like to help you by answering your call to join Allworth's Money Matters. Call now at 833-99-WORTH. That's 833-99-WORTH. Welcome to Allworth's Money Matters. I'm Scott Hansen. I'm Pat McLean. Glad you're joining us today. Myself, my co-host, we're both financial advisors. Um, helping people with their finances. We've been broadcasting this program for 28 years, and glad you are joining us as we talk about um, the world of finances, money, take calls, all those good things. Yes. So it's just gonna... try to help you with your financial peace of mind and um, hopefully entertain ourselves. <laughs> That's fun. Actually, let's start reverse. We've been doing this long enough. Number one, let's entertain ourselves. Make sure we have a good time. Because if we don't have a good time, it's we're not just not going to do it. It's just flat happen. out. It's not going to happen much longer. I've lived with myself for 60 years. I know how I'm going to do this. <laughs> All right. So and anyway, we do have a good uh, program uh, tied up. We and, think um, so. Yeah. No, we've got some calls we're going to yes. take. We've got some good topics. We're also going to be joined by... Uh, Brian Murphy. Brian Murphy out of our office in uh, Tucson, Tucson. Arizona. Um, On investor biases, which should be interesting because he's got a lot of great information. Yeah. So before we we hit the calls, there's a a lot of – I found a lot of really interesting things the last week or so to discuss. I'm going to start with this not interesting thing. So (laughs) – the U.S. deficit, not our debt. Our debt is the amount we've accumulated. Our deficit is how much we are spending of that more than we're taking in. It's the equivalent of the family saying, wait, how much did the credit card bill go up by this month? <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> that is what a deficit is. Over the first... Who do we owe money to? That's a deficit. We spent it and didn't have the ability to pay for it. That's a deficit. Over the first half of fiscal 2023 for the federal government, which ended in March, six months, the federal budget deficit was $1.1 trillion, more than $3,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States. So in In the last six months, that's, that's not an annualized number. No, that was six months. Not an annualized number. Annualized, we're over $2 trillion. What do we have in receipts? $5 trillion or so? Maybe a little less than that. I think I believe that we're somewhere in that ballpark. So, so we're bringing in $5 trillion, spending $7 trillion. On an annualized basis. $6,000, $500 a person for everyone in the country on a monthly basis. That's what that number is. For every American. 500 for you, 500 for you, 500 for you. And part of the, part of the increase, one is the, the net interest uh, that we have to pay. I had a conversation with um, Ben Bernanke years ago. Remember Ben Bernanke? He was the Fed chair. And it was that he was speaking You're at some- You're dropping names now. It's not going to sound very attractive. It's not going to. It's not going to benefit. Normally, me when people are dropping names, they, they're they're celebrities. They're not like finance people. But go ahead, Ben Bernanke, speaking at this conference, not the huge conference, and so he was shortly after he had stepped down as the Fed chair. Was that what he was? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, um, yes, he was. So I came up to him. It was a little cocktail hour afterwards, or whatever, and. You could tell the poor guy, he was clearly doing it for the money. Because he was not enjoying himself. (laughs) Wait, here's another guy with a sports coat uh, coming up to talk to me. I can hardly wait. (laughs) Some some old bald dude in a sport coat. (laughs) Wow, this will be an interesting conversation. (laughs) There's 200 financial advisors. He's like, this will be a blast. I can hardly wait to tell my mother about this conference. My wife about this conference. Okay. Okay. so I said, hey, Benny. <laughs> what? What's up? <laughs> okay, no, so what happened? I, sa- I, I said, look, I said, what happens when interest rates rise 
and the cost of serving our debt, servicing just servicing our debt, balloons. Like, what what models do you have out there that are going to help us deal with this? And he says, oh, well, that won't be an issue because you're only going to have high interest rates in a growing economy. So you're going to have in, you'll have increased revenues to offset the higher cost of interest. And he turned and walked away. Just like that. Turned and walked away. Obviously didn't want to have this conversation. <laughs> no, no response. You said, well, uh, Mr. Bernanke, I built models that say uh, elsewhere. Well, here we are. There's, It's not a growing economy. We have rising interest rates. And not dramatically growing, rising. Not a growing economy. And so our net interest jumped 41%. We spent $308 billion the last six months just servicing our debt. Yes. This, it's this, but, so that's part of the spending. It's part of the spending. We have all kinds. I mean, it's part of the you've spending. seen all the bills that were passed recently. Yes, it's part of the spending. This can't go on forever. It's not good for... Us, Any of us. Or our children or our grandchildren. You cannot manage a household by running a deficit continually unless the income is rising at the same rate or, or faster. faster. You can do it for small periods of time, short periods of time. And it's especially harder if you're not actually investing in real infrastructure. And it's hard to tell if actually what we've been doing with this Green Clean Energy Act is actually real infrastructure or we're just corporate welfare that would have the market would have taken care of by itself. What do you think? Well, there is giving money to a corporation to bring chip building home is not the same as building a port or a road or an airport. (laughs) It is not. You could call it that. But it's not the same. Now there's a glut of chips. It's a trans, and now there is a glut of chips. Before the money even went to all these companies. <laughs> yes. Well, I love the idea that we're bringing it home. I just don't know if you have to actually give the corporations money to make them bring it home. I think it is an interesting time that the collusion between government and big industry has never been as large as it is today. And I'm going to call it collusion because that's what it feels like to me. Give us these subsidies here. I'm going to, I'm going to look at JP Morgan came in and and bailed out uh, the the federal government (laughs) during the depression. Was there a little collusion between JP Morgan and the federal government? It went the other direction. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I don't see how this is. um, JP Morgan, the person, not the bank. John Pierpont Morgan. Who J.P. Morgan is actually named? I was going to say, did you start the bank? <laughs> Pretty sure that's uh, yeah, that's just John Pierpont. Okay. Anyway, so we got that good news going for us. Now, I don't know how we're. Do you want to take some calls and then talk about these? Let's take some calls. Let's take a couple calls. Yeah, that would be good. And I do want to talk a little bit about uh, some of these uh, new fang dangle bonds that are being issued and have been issued, and the risk comes home to roost. There is no such thing as a free lunch. All right, let's start off in California and talk with Janet. Janet, you're with Allworth's Money Matters. Hi. What can we do to help? Well, <laughs> I, um, my husband and I are uh, having a disagreement, and we are currently living together okay. in a house that I am completely done with. And um, <laughs> part of my in- – and I tried um, – something that you guys say once in a while, which is, it's not a good idea to love something that can't love you back. Yes. Uh, I haven't gotten anywhere with that with him <laughs> okay. because this is his dream, dream home, but he has had a dream home before that he had to be pried out of. Okay. Um, so this is his new day. dream home. Yes. The, okay. The recent, the, his second dream home. Okay. How long have you lived uh, there? Uh, just since 2012, and it's a much fancier area than we lived in, and I am just done with it. it. It, I mean, if we really wanted to belong to a country club, we'd be in great shape here, but we don't. Okay, and and can you afford to live there? Oh gosh, yes. 
But my point is, <laughs> what's your question both, for it, Janice? This is funny. Well, we both <laughs> not to laugh at you. I'm just kind of interested in like uh, how we can be of help. Well, my point of view is that too much of our net worth is tied up in this house. Okay. Our net worth is about 2.4 million, and um, this house would probably sell for 900 to a million dollars. But it is too big. It's Everything about it is expensive, you know, and I feel like it's wasteful and it's on almost half an acre. And um, I want to live someplace where I can walk out the door and walk to things like restaurants and um, stores. I actually want to live near Trader Joe's. Um, (laughs) Isn't that funny? Because my my wife has parking. Preferred parking <laughs> at, at Trader, Trader Joe's. <laughs> I love. We like we, my wife. We shop at Trader Joe's. Too. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, what's, well, your, what's your what's your what's uh, your annual income? Uh, One hundred and twenty thousand. And where's the income coming from? Working, um, retirement, pension. What? Uh, oh, we're retired. My husband uh, has a pension, a good sized pension, and I have a, a couple of small pensions, and then we both get Social Security. So. And are so, you taking any money from out of your savings? To live off? No, we're saving a lot of money. And so this $2.4 million in net worth, does it include the home or exclude the home? It does, yeah. Yeah, but you have a pension. You've got pension and Social Security income of over $100,000 a year. If you actually calculated the net present value of that, it's in the millions. It's in the millions. It's in the millions. Right. Um, And I understand that. So, so you, it, if uh, you called and said, hey, here's our financial situation. We're thinking about buying a million-dollar house. Can we do it or not? No, um, we're in it. I understand. understand. But we, the answer would be, if that's what you want to do, yes, you can. But So you call because you don't want to be in the house, but your husband wants to be in the house. And right. and, and are you looking for us to give you uh, yes. reasons for your uh, side <laughs> yes. of the argument versus your husband's? Well, it, it, <laughs> You, you don't have too much. You don't have too much of your net worth tied up in this house. That's the reality. And you could afford to live there. But you, your, your idea of of of, of lifestyle is different. You'd like a smaller house somewhere you can go walk to restaurants, and your husband wants this big fancy house in the country club area. So, so you have but, different opinions. But, there. but when you look at that nine hundred thousand versus, I can see where you're coming from. You're looking at the nine hundred thousand versus the two point four million, and right. you're saying this is forty percent. Of um, of our net worth in a single asset, but you're kind of right. But if I took that flow of income from the pensions and the Social Security, which are both of them, I assume have some sort of a guarantee on them, and I did what's called a net present value. How, how old are you? Uh. 74 and 76. Okay. So if I did a net present value of that stream of income of just the pensions, um, it would add a a million and a half maybe to that lump sum. So it, then it would, so I could argue both sides of this, right? Um, it would say, well, then $900,000 house for, uh, you know, $4 million net worth. Is that too much? No, it's not. You don't have right. you don't have too much money tied up in a single asset just based on those. Well, that's, that's just um, a, that's just academics anyway. That that's kind of right. exercise. The question you've got uh, income coming in that's through pension and social security. You're not even spending all that, and you've got another outside of your house. You've got another million and a half bucks saved up. So, yeah, from a financial standpoint, you're we can't fine. make an argument that you shouldn't be there. So yeah. one of you two, one of you are going to have to yield to the other. That's all. I mean. <laughs> Or well, that he and he certainly finds that a very um, unacceptable idea. You know, I have another idea. Just call Trader Joe's and see if you could get one moved closer to your house. <laughs> actually, I'm gonna. Uh, actually, we're gonna rent a place that I'm gonna live in for three months. Oh, and he can see uh, how it is for him. He can visit me. Oh, you know, I gotta tell you. Um, I, I, my wife and I uh, had a place in downtown Sacramento, um, near downtown Sacramento for a number of years um, when we had lots and lots of activity down there and we were living, you know, I live an hour, 45 minutes to an hour away. It's going to sound elitist, but that's just the way we could afford it. 
and we wanted to do it. And we enjoyed that lifestyle um, for a little while. And uh, we would spend. It was like a condo you had. It was it a, no, like it wasn't. No, 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 house. no. It was it was an inexpensive condo that was easy to take care of, and that was fine. And living in the suburbs is fine too. Um, but it if you can afford to, to do that experiment and see how he likes it, I think that's a great solution. Well, we lived there for twenty years happily, so I think we could do it again. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Good luck. And, and uh, by the way, I'm not living in the house I want to live in. Uh, but my wife is she's stronger personality than I am. <laughs> Some of these things. she cares more. I don't like. I can't really. I really don't care. Well, I enjoy you guys, and I do see the foolishness of calling two guys to get help. <laughs> okay, well, this is. But your you, numbers make sense. Th- th- there yeah. is, yeah, yeah, yeah yes. If, if look, if we didn't, you know, you called us for an opinion, um, and we gave it to you, and financially you can afford there, and if if you if so, this house that you're going to move back into, do you own that house now? No, no. Oh, you're just no. going to rent a place to see what it's like. Yeah. Perfect. Give it, yeah. give it a shot. Just don't sign I'm a gonna... twelve month lease. No, no, three months. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Give it, a, give it a shot. See how it works. Works there. Uh, okay. All right. Thanks appreciate so the call, Janet. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> that was an interesting call. It's yeah. interesting. But I can see that they can't afford it. it. Makes a difference. They're not stretching to do it. Let's head to Kentucky and talk with Dan. Dan, you're with Allworth's Money Matters. I have a couple of retirement questions for you. All righty. Uh, I'm wanting to convert some of my 401k to a Roth IRA. And I was wondering how much percentage I could take out each calendar year without affecting my taxes too much. Okay. And then you said a couple of questions. Let's um, ask the second one at the same time and see if they actually tie into each other. Okay. Uh, where I work, we had uh, the old fashioned fixed pension for calendar years of service. Yep, yep. Well, the new company bought us out, and they're offering us a buyout. Okay. In cash dollars. And my question is, would it be better to go with mm. a fixed annuity with this money or a rollover IRA that was in conservative mode? All right. And- let's, okay, so let's, uh, let's unpack this um, because they both tie into each other. Um, okay. Are you employed now? Uh, yeah, I got two more months. And how old are you? Seventy. And what's your income? Uh, it's roughly around seventy thousand. Are you married? Yes. And does your uh, spouse have an income? She's retired. Okay. She gets around twenty six. Twenty six what? Twenty six thousand. A year, okay. From Social Security, I'm presuming. Yeah, and a little from Kellogg's. Okay. Have you started Social Security yet? Yes, I have. How much are you receiving? Uh, it's a little over 2000 a month. How much money do you have Here. in your 401k or IRAs? Uh, 460000 Uh Is and- your home paid for? Uh, no. How much do you owe on your house? About forty thousand. And what's the value? About two ninety. And do you have any money in brokerage accounts or savings or anything like that? Uh, yeah, I've got a Roth IRA separate from the work one. And how much is in there? Uh, it's about eighty thousand. Alrighty. And how's your health? Uh, good. How's your spouse's health? Uh, pretty good. She has a couple issues. Okay. But nothing drastic. So they're offering you a pension or a lump sum? Uh, a lump sum cash out. Yeah. How much is that? How much would the pension be? And how much is the uh, lump sum? The lump sum money is 125,000. And how much would the pension be? Uh, that was going to be like 500 a month for life. Single life only. 500 a month? Yeah. Yeah. Versus $120,000 lump sum. Right. 
So what Scott is actually on his calculator, he's doing what's called a net present value calculation. I actually didn't because I don't have a uh, – oh, here's oh. a life expectancy oh. table. Uh, we're doing a net present value calculation based upon your life expectancy mm-hmm. uh, in order to determine – Yeah, I don't – at 70 – so here's the challenge. We can run the net present – the challenge is you, you're going to have a, a more challenging time – well – would you take a single life on this, just you, or would you take a reduced amount for your, protected for your spouse? So they offered Probably. that to you, right? Uh, yes, they did. And what were what were those offers? Was it 90%, 50%? Was it 80%, 80 75, 50. 75, 50? No, it's by... 75%, 75% and 50. Those are the options. Yeah, okay. So let's assume you took instead of five hundred, it was four fifty a month. You took, you said, I'm going to make sure it's around for my wife. That's fifty four hundred dollars a year, out of a uh, hundred twenty five thousand dollars. I'm not doing a net present value. I'm just seeing how much. Yeah, what the hurdle rate would be. It, it, it's four point three percent. So if you're confident you can earn greater than four point three percent, take the lump sum, and then you still have your. Matter of fact. You could buy a commercial annuity. At yeah, a you'd be, yes, yeah, you could actually. Uh, um, yes. So the answer to this question, and and if if you're listening to this program and you think, oh, I should always take the lump sum. It always depends. It always depends, and oftentimes the calculations right. from company to company are different in how they calculate the pension and versus the lump sum. But I in, almost wonder if this used an interest rate that like so middle old. of next year. Are are you confident? You mean an old interest rate? Like when did they present this to you? This year. In 2023? Yeah. It could be that his pension plan uses an interest rate July 1st of each year. Because you would think that in this environment that— I would have thought it would be much lower lump sum. Correct, relative to the income. If these numbers are accurate, Uh and you're my older brother, I'd say take the lump sum. Take the lump sum. Now, would it go to a fixed annuity or an IRA roll? I would. Well, how's your How is your 401k allocated now? Uh, it's balanced. It's. I'm, I'm in the lots of different categories. Yeah. So, it, I mean, the uh, probably best if it's, even if it's sixty percent fixed income, forty percent stocks. I think. Yeah, you'd be fine. And and have you reacted? You obviously have a good saver. You've made seventy thousand dollars a year. Your job and you've saved four hundred and sixty thousand. You're a good plus saver. Plus Roth. Plus your Roth. So you're a good saver. Have Have you reacted to the markets over the last few years, ten years, twenty years, and moving your portfolio in and out of the market? No. Okay. I've kind of just left it stable after two thousand eight when it crashed. Perfect. Um, and I let it. I let it go. Yep. I would put this thing in a 50-50 portfolio. Scott said not even Either that one. aggressive, but that's fine. And take you the lump high, sum. Very high probability of earning greater than the, the uh, monthly annuity, and you've got your principal to boot. That's right, which is even better than a net present value. I mean, the calculation. Mm-hmm. Correct. That, 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 that number there. So you want to take the lump sum, move it in with the IRA, uh, and then I would take out, so we take a look there, you've got $580,000, and um, then I would start taking income off of it of 4%. Okay, now that's what I want for my last draw on my uh, retirement. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of leaving that one there like an ace in the hole. For the Roth okay. IRA. Yeah. Yeah, and then the, the question about whether you could convert to um, an IRA or I not wouldn't to bother. an IRA, I wouldn't bother. I wouldn't bother. I, I wouldn't s- convert. It. I wouldn't. I'd start taking the four percent distributions tomorrow and wouldn't bother converting. So the only time I would recommend it in this situation, if you said you and your wife were going to do a Thelma and Louise, and um, your kids were going to inherit it, and your kids were in a high <laughs> tax bracket, that's like the only. Th- Situation I could think of that would make sense in your situation to yes. convert. So no, so the, the those questions did tie in together, um, mm-hmm. but you, uh, yep, just roll it over into the IRA. Make sure the IRA is fifty fifty, uh, equity versus fixed income, and I'd be I'd be comfortable taking five percent out even your age seventy. Yep. Right. Yep. Perfect. How much money do you have in the bank? Uh, Ten thousand. Okay, you're great. You're a hard worker. Congratulations on the retirement. Um, is it being driven at all because the company was purchased, or were you planning on retiring? 
Uh, yeah, 70 was my target age. And the uh, company taking over, liquid liquidizing the pensions, you know, that influenced it too. Yep, yep. Then it's actually, it's pretty normal. It, uh, it's pretty normal. Right. But hey, congratulations on the retirement. Congratulations on uh, being such a great saver. Appreciate the call. Hey, thanks for your input, guys. I all appreciate all it. All right, Dan. All right, thanks, Dan. Wish you well. Thank you. Have a good one. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, um, well, we're going to be joined with uh, Brian Murphy and hear his. I think it'd be interesting because talking about investor bias. Um, but we also want to talk a little bit about these new bonds. Well, they they were new. I don't yeah. think we see them anymore. And now. actually, how they have hurt um, um, many of the Asian, not rich people in Asia. Rich people in Asia, these bonds, which were a big buyer of some of these Credit Suisse, Suisse uh, bonds. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And if that doesn't make you want to stay till the second half of the show, I don't know what will. <laughs> we'll be right back. Can't get enough of Allworth's Money Matters? Visit allworthfinancial.com slash radio to listen to the Money Matters podcast. Welcome back to Allworth's Money Matters. Scott Hansen. Pat McClain. We've got uh, I, what I consider a special guest. I know I've known, I've met thousands of financial advisors over the years. Pat, as you would probably Qu- as well. quit bragging, maybe more <laughs> bragging. <laughs> First, I could hang out with Ben Bernanke. <laughs> <laughs> you just made it. Got a bunch of financial advisors. Oh, I love it. <laughs> um, my wife came to a conference one time with me. Mine too. Once. 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 We were at this dinner, and uh, this guy would not shut up about his Ferrari or whatever kind of car. He had some fancy car, his wine collection, and his big house in Florida. I just for the whole, it was dominating the conversation. And I turned to my wife and I said, "I promise, I will never bring you to one of these." Things. I never even got that far. She left. <laughs> <laughs> my wife's like, "Why am I here?" So our industry this is supposed of, to be fun for me. There are some, clearly, some people that are really they're doing it really just for the money, like the money. It is, yeah, it is a money industry. And there are there are some that the money's a nice byproduct, but they really do it because they care about their clients and they want to make an impact in people's lives. And this is the path that they've chosen to make that impact. Yes. Brian and Murphy. Speaking of that, we have Mr. Brian Murphy with us. Brian Murphy is one of those um, um, truly cares about his clients. So, Brian, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Scott, and thank you, Pat. Uh, you know, needless to say, uh, big fans of the big fan of the show, and uh, you guys dispense a lot of great advice. And happy to be a part of it. Okay, okay. and uh, thank thank you, Brian. And just for the rest of the listeners, Brian is an employee of Allworth Financial. And a partner. Uh, I'm sorry, partner and employee, as I am a partner and employee of Allworth Financial. And it, he joined us, what, two and a half years ago, three years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Believe it or not, it's uh, December uh, of 20. So, I mean, it's it's been a while. And yeah. you started in the business what year? Or December, Actually, it was December of 19. So, January of 20 was my first year. I started in the business in 1985 at, wow. uh, uh, let's just say, a large Wall Street brokerage firm. Uh, based in New York. And, uh, you know, I was on my own and, and did my uh, own thing beginning in 1998 was when I started the uh, the firm that ultimately became part of Allworth. But uh, I began in the business. I got my Series 7 license in October of 85. Okay. <laughs> well, you're, a, uh, you're also a student of behavioral finance, right? And that's what we wanted to talk with you about today. Um, Long time. And, you know, uh, I, I guess the, the one constant in uh, in investing is human behavior. And, and that's probably one of the more predictable elements. And so I've read lots of books, attended a number of uh, classes and uh, always look for it when I go to a conference. Uh, just uh, fascinated by how human beings all seem to behave the same way at times. It's really, it's so interesting, Brian, because those studies, I think Dalbar, one of those, will put them out and they'll show, here's what the markets have returned the last 20 years. Here's what the average investor has returned. Actually, it it goes back to what uh, I've said for years and years, which is everything works perfectly until you involve people. On paper, it was brilliant. 
right? Yeah, so exactly. Tell us what like the study of behavioral finance actually means. What 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 do you hope to learn out of studying this? Well, I I, I think uh, it, you know the, the the academic definition obviously is uh, it's the merge of economics and psychology, right? So you you have uh, investing in people. And uh, there are some, you know, very famous uh, people out there, uh, noteworthy university professors, uh, Danny Kahneman probably being one of the most noteworthy lately, you know, who have spent their entire life studying why people behave uh, in a certain way around money. And, And ironically, as you two both know very well, that behavior is often irrational. And so studying, uh, you know, why that herd mentality that we all uh, used for survival, you know, whatever, millions of years ago or thousands of years ago is on the, on the plains of Africa, it may have uh, uh, allowed you to survive uh, as a tribal member, but it doesn't, it doesn't serve you well as an investor. So my goal of, of, you know, being a student of behavioral finance is to help my clients avoid those foibles. Uh, that inevitably lead to failure when investing. Yeah, and it's funny, Brian, because the longer I've been doing this, the, the the more I see the greatest value that I believe I've provided as a financial advisor is keeping people from making mistakes from which they cannot recover. It's those those decisions or lack of decisions that can derail someone's financial plans and their lives, oftentimes. There, there's no question that you're you're right about that, and and you know I it, way back in in the day I used to liken it to, uh, you know pushing pushing the red button, you know the the ejector button uh, that just says okay I'm 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 getting out now I can't stand the pain anymore, and you know that that creates very very often. Uh, harm that you can't recover from. I mean, it, you know, if you did it at the bottom in 0809, uh, in when markets were down, you know, close to 50%, yeah. and you spent a couple of years deciding when to get back in, uh, you, you did irreparable harm to your retirement. That's right. So I always, in my simplistic terms, I always think of there's there's three of me when it comes to investing. There's three of me. There's me in the middle, which is, you, the the one that I believe is the most rational part of it, and then there's on my right is this greed guy, the greed investor in me, and on my left is the fear investor in me, and that there's this balance between the fear and the greed and what's really rational. So, and I might argue that it's not greed; it might even be a fear. There, you still you don't quite. If you had a little bit more, it would bring financial security. Right. It's, I thought I'd be secure at this point, but I'm not. If I had a little bit more, if I could just get this a little higher, then I would be secure. OK, so that we you'll, that may be correct. It's not pure out greed like I have to get everything. I just want to learn. So how does that equate to investor behavior and how how do how do you actually take your clients as stopping them go from helping them stop themselves, go from too far in one direction and or the other? And do they look for things like confirmation bias on either way they're doing? You see this a lot, which is I can cite, I want to invest more in the market and I'll cite 20 places <laughs> that tell me why I'm right, but I want to take money out of the market. And I therefore too can cite 20 places why I should not be in the market, the market being the equities market. So yeah, can that, you spend that, a couple yeah. minutes Or I should wear a mask or I should not wear a mask. Same thing. Okay, well, we can't go but there. I'm Scott. just saying, you can get a gazillion articles. That's right, right? There's, uh, we see tons of confirmation bias in the political uh, oh, arena in which we live today. And in the whole COVID thing. Okay, confirmation bias. So Brian, take it well, away. I, what, the, 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 the basis of your question is, you know, how do I deal with clients and how do I apply it, uh, you know, face-to-face with people? And I usually start out, uh, and I, I like to use an analogy that has nothing to do uh, with, with investing. And what I'll say to people, and, you know, very often, as you guys know, it's, it's a, a husband and a wife that are sitting across the table and, you know, we're getting ready to talk about investing and financial planning and so on and so forth. And, you know, I'll look at them and I'll say, so before we, you know, dive in, just tell me, um, you know, Bob or Bill or Mary or Sue or whatever their names are, you know, 
Bob, are what kind of a driver are you? Are are you a are you an average driver, below average, above average? You know, what? Tell me about your driving abilities. Invariably, Bob says, "Oh, I'm a really good driver. I'm I'm definitely above average." Now, often his wife will disagree with that assessment, but you know, he he he'll say he's you know he's he's better than average. Well, in terms of behavioral finance, you go back and you look at many of the studies that have been done. There was a big one that was done in the early 2000s, and they interviewed 10,000 drivers in the state of New York, and they asked them all, are you average, uh, below average, or above average with your driving skills? And 95, 94% of all the people who were polled above responded average. that they were above average drivers. <laughs> Which, well, that's just impossible. Yeah, of I course, <laughs> So if you think about if you take that to investing, you know, 90 percent of all people think that they're above average investors. And the answer to your question that you posed a few uh, or maybe the insight that you shared a few minutes ago about, uh, you know, people that are out there uh, doing it on their own. And, and, and that when when Vanguard did their study called the Advisor Alpha study, they found that on average, advisors add three full percentage points over a long cycle above and beyond what the do-it-yourselfer is getting. And there's got to be a reason for that. And part of the reason is people think that they're better at investing than they are. And uh, I don't have to tell you guys, but you know, to share with your listeners, um, there's a database out there ma- uh, monitored and maintained by uh, the Standard & Poor's Group, and everybody's heard of the S&P 500, but it's called the SPIVA database, Standard & Poor's Indices versus Active. And when you start a mutual fund, you get a phone call eventually from the folks at S&P, and they say, well, what index of ours would you like us to track your performance against? And so the managers of the fund will say, well, you know, uh, small cap or large cap or, you know, S&P 500, whatever, and check our index. Well, when you look at the numbers over a 10-year time frame, and and it's even worse over a a 20-year or 15 or 20-year time frame. Over 90% of all active managers managing mutual funds fail to beat their own stated benchmark. So if the professionals can't do it, then why would you, Mr. Jones or you know Mrs. Smith, whatever, think that 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 you're able to do it? And uh, you know, and then the further proof in the pudding, which we already talked about, which is the you know the Vanguard study, uh, which has been redone a couple of times by Vanguard, where they compare the results of their clients that uh, are uh, doing it on their own versus those who use advisors. And you can you can clearly see in the numbers that that people are not very good at doing it on their own. And my answer to that to my clients is because you have these cognitive biases and you have these uh, emotional reasons that you either take action or fail to take action. And with a third party involved, uh, namely a financial advisor or me, you you run a much better risk of outperforming or at least performing in line with what markets are doing and what your expectations are than you would if you were sitting on your own watching CNBC and listening to Kramer scream that, you know, it's time to sell or buy, buy, buy. Those are not really rational reasons to take action. And Pat, you 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 said it yourself, you know, confirmation bias. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I can go out and collect evidence on buying or selling on CNBC that is directly contradictory all day long, 50 times a day, 50 guests, you know, saying buy and 50 saying sell. And I just pick which one I like. And that becomes one of the key biases, which is, you know, collecting evidence that confirms our our conclusion before we go out there and truly evaluate that evidence. So I just see it as a way to help clients. That's my answer. So and so the cognitive bias, right? So the cognitive bias that is not only confirmation bias, but it is you know, political bias, which mm-hmm. is a cognitive bias. Uh, it is how you I want to f- believe it's yeah. It's how I feel about the environment. It's how yep. I feel about any sort of, uh, you know, religious or moral, uh, right. I could work that as a cognitive bias in my decision-making. Sure. Right. It, 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 and but quite frankly, you could look at it today and you could, you you could look at this and you could use nothing but cognitive bias to decide whether you should buy Disney stock or not. You want to talk about a company that's been tied up in all sorts of political things that have 
<laughs> I don't maybe know. little or nothing to do with the value of the stock, but it's driving the value of the stock based upon these biases that people are bringing to the marketplace. But that's a yeah. There, that's a there, there's no question that those you know highly personal biases lead to conclusions that may be entirely false when evaluating Disney. Because honestly, you and I both know the the reason to buy Disney is because you think it's going to go up, and the you can evaluate the financial condition of Disney. You can evaluate its value relative to its peers. You can do a lot of objective evaluations, but you're right. M many people are either buying or selling uh, Disney based on those embedded biases, and which really brings emotion into the conversation because now, you know, you're, you're a very strong advocate for you know, rights in one community versus another, and Disney seems to support that, so I'm going to go buy Disney. That's not a reason to invest. That's that's an emotional choice to support uh, something that you're in favor of or vice versa, something that you might be against. So it's it's I think it's really important to have the game plan, which you guys talk about all the time. You know, there there's a solution for all these biases that are, uh, embedded in our psyche. And, and I think, you know, one of the big ones is any investor who has experience, and I, I label experiences, that's what you get when you get what you don't want. But any investor with any amount of experience uh, has, has sold a stock or a fund or a bond or whatever for a loss. And all the research tells us that as individuals, we feel losses and they attempt to quantify this, but six times more poignantly than we feel gains. So for, for every dollar you lose, that feels like $6. And for every dollar you make, that only feels like a dollar. Well, people that have experienced, say, uh, the financial crisis in, you know, 08, 09, uh, they come with a very strong bias that, you know, th this happened to me once before, and I'm not going to let it happen to me again. I, I had a conversation late last year in 2022 uh, with a guy who had been, was a former stockbroker, had been out of the market since 2009 <laughs> because he just felt like it was going to happen again. He was right. But he was right because the markets do go down, but it doesn't, if you're if you're investing for long periods of time, well, listen, Brian, we we've got to run, but I find this fascinating, um, and and you're you're right, and I, when you you're talking like this, I think about how marketers uh, and salespeople prey on these things, like selling. On the way into the studio today, I was hearing the thing about don't let be caught up in uh, the downturn in the markets like the Great Recession before. Get into physical gold, you're like yeah, okay. Well, they never talked about the time that the gold had a bear market, only when the equities had a bear market. As if, or how gold has performed over the last 100 years. That's right. 200 we're, years. We're not going to talk about that. Yeah. Or why you should own an index annuity because you've got downside protection in the market. Forget the, the fact that the cost of the downside protection uh, relative to the cap on the upside is – you would never make that equation Brian, if you me, understood let me, it. Let me ask you this question, Brian. So think of a client that – uh, someone who really likes to be in control, right? We all have those clients and we have people like that in our lives. Yeah. They always want to control and they come in, the markets are in a crazy period. They come in and talk with you because they're there to do something. How do you guide the client like that? Well, I, I think the best uh, defense is always evidence. And, uh, and, and you know, I, I, I'm sure clients get, sick of us saying, well, okay, here's the chart going back the last hundred years. Here's the number of recessions that we've seen. Here's the number of bear markets that we've seen. And here are the recoveries. What I like to do is, again, and I said this earlier, you know, I, I like using analogies. You know, when, when I got into the business, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was bouncing around between 1,000 and 1,500. Do you have any idea where it is today? 
And when they answer that question, oh, I don't know, you know, 32, 33,000, you know, something like that. Okay. And let's think about some of the bad things that happened. Do you remember the financial crisis? Yes. Do you remember 9-11 when the buildings in New York were falling down? Yes. Do you remember President Reagan getting shot? Yes. I mean, and so on. Do you remember when you woke up one morning and we invaded, you know, in the Middle East? And yes. Okay. All of those things have happened, yet the Dow Jones, since I got in the market, you know, in the business in 85 until today, has gone up, gone from 1,000 to 33,000. If you sell today, you're taking all those possibilities away from your future. And, and I, I like to make it personal and, and tell them my experience and then let them tell me all the bad things that happened between 1985 and today. Mm, that's Perfect. good. Perfect. Well, as always, thank you, um, Brian. Thanks for being a part of the show. Thanks be, for being part of the All, All Worth team. Yeah, even more so. So, well, um, thank you guys, and keep up the great work. And uh, you know, we'll we'll keep sending people your way to listen because they they walk away smarter than they show up for uh, sure. Thank you, Brian. We'll, we'll make sure that bonus check is a little larger. When are we handing out the bonus checks? Why did I not hear about the bonus checks? I appreciate it, Brian. Yeah, good day. He's a good guy. Pat, before um, we had talked about this on the program, these new <laughs> earlier in the show, these new newer bonds that are called additional tier one securities. These were a special type of bond that Credit Suisse had issued that paid an interest rate of nine point seven five percent. When they first sold the bond back, they, they just went to the market with $1.6 billion in June of 2022, less than a year ago. Credit Suisse raised through a debt offering $1.65 billion at an interest rate. This is a bank at an interest rate of 9.75%. Which at that interest rate should tell us that there's inherent risk in these bonds <laughs> because if... So just clients all the time will say, well, this is yielding X amount versus the thing you're talking about, Pat. I'm like, you can't, can't compare those two. The yield is almost always, almost always, I would say 99% of the time, the yield is the equivalent to the risk that you're taking. The higher the yield. On a yield, for sure. On a yield. Not a dividend, a yield on a bond, a yield on anything. The risk and the difference between this is, look, government bonds of the same maturity or the same risk. Uh, CDs, FDIC, insurance, they should be equivalent. But if you've got a Credit Suisse bond that's at 9.75 and you've got an equivalent Bank of America bond at 6%, and like, well, why, rather than get excited about the higher yield, I should be asking myself, why are they paying? Why do they have to pay so much more? What, 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 what am I not seeing here? Well, <laughs> typically bondholders are first in line when the company goes bust. Company goes into receivership, bankruptcy, whatnot. It's typically the bondholders. All debts are paid first. If there's any money left over. Well, attorneys are paid first. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> then all the expenses are paid. The debts are repaid. If there's anything left, then the owners get it. The equity owners. The owners get. But the stockholders. Not... The stockholders. So yes, this is. We're the owners. This is the ladder in which if there is a bankruptcy, you will get paid back. Unless you own ATI bonds. I'm sorry, AT1 bonds. Because they came in back of the line. They came behind the owners. So when Credit Suisse was in trouble and a deal was brokered by the Swiss government for them to be taken over, the bondholders were wiped out. Of these bonds. Of these bonds. Done. Zero. Nothing. $1.65 billion was raised for investors less than a year ago. June of 2022. And these bonds, here's, this, it's these sort of things, Pat, that's why I think it's so important to work with a fiduciary independent advisor. Because 
these banks were selling them to their own clients. That's exactly right. They manufacture these products, which is what this is, or they're helping uh, a company raise some capital and they go and sell them to their clients. And this was in, this comes from a article I'm reading from, was this the wall street journal? I believe it's the journal. Yes. So this is quote, many private bankers in Asia pushed AT one bonds for various banks to their clients in recent years. So this was Jessica Kutrera, Hong Kong based president, independent wealth advisors, Leo wealth. So she comes right out and says, look, these banks, they were recommending to them. These AT1's bonds were sold, not bought. There's a difference between the two. It means someone brought them to the marketplace and said that this is why you really need to buy this. It wasn't a, um, it was a problem looking for a solution. The, the, the bank needed to actually get rid of these, needed to raise these monies. It was really a yield play. We never liked them, but I know a lot of people who did. So she said, look, we sold them anyway, but we were just selling yield. We were just selling, look, they're 9.75. You know what this reminds me of? So this was years ago, 20 years ago or so. A friend of mine I knew from the gym came up to me and he, said, he asked me, hey, what do I think about this particular financial broker who was with one of the big Wall Street firms? And... I knew that the, I knew that financial advisor guy. And I said, I think he's a good guy. I've heard he's got a good reputation. Um, he says, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about investing with him. And I said to him, no, I don't solicit people to gym. So I didn't, I didn't know. Well, here's my card. Come see me. I just said, well, if you do just be careful, don't buy any of the products that their, that firm manufactures. That's all I said to him. Just don't buy any of the stuff that they, their own, that the stuff they manufacture. Well, right in the financial crisis, there was a, they created this, supposedly it was a cash alternative that was supposed to be yielding about 7%. Everything worked fine until it didn't. Then it was trading at 13 cents on the dollar. These were cash reserves that he'd put in this thing. Which was supposed to be his safe money, liquid money. And I remember, all I thought to myself is either he ignored my advice after he asked it, or he just, um, he had forgotten about or it. Or he didn't understand it. Or he didn't understand it. If you're working, if your advisor's with one of those big firms, I would suggest don't buy the stuff that that company's underwriting themselves. If they're out there raising capital for these for companies, either through stock sales or through bond sales, don't buy that stuff. They're not. They're conflicted. Yeah. They cannot give you rational advice. They're conflicted. Yeah. Correct. Or special opportunity acquisition oh, companies. Gosh, all kinds of stuff. Anyway, we're out of time. It's been fun being with you. We'll see you next week. This has been All Worth's Money Matters. This program has been brought to you by Allworth Financial, a registered investment advisory firm. Any ideas presented during this program are not intended to provide specific financial advice. You should consult your own financial advisor, tax consultant, or estate planning attorney to conduct your own due diligence.